basically, it, you know, it's a it's a big statistical program, and you are you're weighing you're you're feeding out different genetic lines for for lack of a better term, and basically saying, okay, how much feed did it take for this line to get to this weight, and how much feed did it take for this line over here to get to that same weight, and effectively, no matter. I mean, obviously, in this scenario, you're feeding them all the same diet to keep everything controlled. But the assumption is that if that line over here took less feed to get to that weight, even if I put them on a different feeding program, they're still going to take less feed to get to that weight because of whatever is different in their physiology, ability to absorb nutrients, things like that. What what are the things? So, so you're obviously looking for genetic lines. What are the actual things within the animal if it's if it is independent of feed uh, a type and, and their daily gain and all that, like you mentioned, what are the things that the research would suggest are actually happening within the animal that makes one genetic line able to more efficiently consume feed than the other? A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Thank you for joining the Feed Science Podcast Show for Wise Genetics. I'm Adam Farenholz here in the feed milling program at North Carolina State University. Today, my guest is Gaston Alfaro. Uh, Gaston is a professor at the National University of Cordoba, and he is a ruminant nutritionist there, uh, working on things especially related to products that uh, are getting fed and going through uh, the rumen protection process. Uh, So he's got some interesting things, hopefully, to talk with us about on what it takes to get nutrients through the the ruminant feeding process. Hey, Gaston, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Um, It's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm very glad to be part of this podcast again. Yeah, it's uh, this will be. Um, I guess someone has done a, a webinar with uh, Wise Analytics before, and and some other things with uh, with the platform. So we're we're a returning guests, which is great. That the the platform has grown to the, the standpoint where we uh, we're we're kind of going multiple podcasts are all getting tied together here, which is which is awesome. Um, if you would, uh, if you would give the um, the audience a bit of your background, kind of, um, you know, how you got to be where, where you are today, uh, working there as a professor. And then also, um, after that, give us some idea of the current things that, that you're working on. That'd be great. 
Sounds good. Yeah, actually, I'm from Argentina. You can notice that for my strange English. <laughs> and I was born here and I study in the same university in which I am a professor now. And after I graduated, I moved to Florida to help in some projects uh, with women protected Colleen in dairy cattle. And after that, I moved to Alabama to Auburn University, uh, where I had the opportunity to to do my master's and my PhD, working again with women protecting nutrients, uh, such as uh, women protecting methionine and, and niacin. And after four exciting years in, in Alabama, I moved to Nebraska, to the other region, to a different world, working in feedlot, cattle, and nutrition. And after a couple months, I got my position back in, in Cordoba, in my city. So I, I came back to my, my hometown. And actually, I'm, I'm working here as a, as a professor. I also work in another university of the province of Cordoba called the National University of Villa Maria, in which I provide courses of postgraduate courses. And I'm in charge or, or the manager of experimental station in, in, in the National University of Cordoba, in which we work with uh, residual feed intake. And we try to understand and select the, the best bulls for, for being good parents in the future, basically. So. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So it sounds like when you uh, when you came to the United States, you got to go to Alabama where it's warm all the time, and then they sent you to Nebraska where it's not yeah. um, not warm all the time. Yeah. Uh, like you said, very different world. Um, so let's start. I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about running the experiment station as well, but let's just start for for those that might not be familiar when we talk about having to rumen protect certain ingredients. So some folks might be aware, some folks might not, depending on what area of, of feed manufacturing they might come from, what species they might work with. But unlike when we're feeding monogastrics or we can just feed them synthetic amino acids and it goes to the small intestine and gets digested, that doesn't work very well in, in rumens. Can you explain to everybody kind of why that is? Yeah, the, the interesting thing and um, I thought that it was important to name the, the title of this podcast to be Rumen Protecting Nutrients because we're not targeting at one specific nutrient, but we have a, a strategy for uh, bypassing the, the nutrients to, uh, to be absorbed in the intestine. And that, that is an important thing to know. And I like to explain the rumen like a cosmopolitan city in which there are a lot of indiv different individuals that they have different habits, they have they eat different things, and they do different things. And that's why we need to bypass that organ, because if we want to target a specific need that we are having in an animal, specifically in a ruminant, we need to bypass that. And as I said, I call it nutrients because... Not all the nutrients uh, have the same metabolism in the rumen uh, because some individuals or some microbes prefer one nutrient to the other. So based, based on the requirements of the animals, we need to target uh, a specific nutrient and a specific quantity for uh, a desired uh, response from the animal. So how 
do we do that from a from like an ingredient manufacturing standpoint? What's different from you know my well, well, synthetic amino acids work well? You mentioned choline work well as, as models for the explanation. Um, what's different between the one that I might get to feed to pigs and chickens and the one that I'm going to feed to cattle? What's what's actually different about those two different ingredients from a product perspective? Well, there is a, a, an interesting way to uh, coat the nutrient. Uh, actually, the, there, are, there are very efficient ones, but I think the most efficient one is a pH-sensitive copolymer, such as uh, vinyl pyridine. And there are others, such as ethyl cellulose or, or calcium uh, coat. But uh, the one that I mentioned is, is very important because uh, it avoids the degradation of the microbes in the rumen. So since it is made basically by fat, it can be absorbed in the intestine and it, it avoids the, the degradation in the rumen. Okay. So when we are, are feeding these animals and, and, and we're giving them um, this this rumen protect rumen protected product. It, it's letting it get further down into um, into the the intestine so that it can be fully absorbed. What would our let's say I'm I'm feeding and I don't have access to something like that. It's it's something that's cost prohibitive or unavailable in my area or something along those lines. What would be our feeding strategies at that point? If okay, I, I don't have access to a rumen protected choline or lysine, but I still have to get enough to the animal for them to to grow and function. What's my strategy then if I don't have a, a rumen protected or what? I, which I guess is the same question as what was the strategy a long time ago when we didn't have these these products available to us? Yeah, that's a very good question, and that made me think in in, in terms of when. If, we, if, we, if the research before, a couple of years ago, or many years ago, actually, it was around the C-70s when the, the research discovered that there was a need for some ingredients or some nutrients, uh, specifically in dairy animals, they started or they began to study the rumen protected way to develop uh, nutrients. And they found that there were some specifically amino acids that were limited, uh, sorry, limited in the in the rumen of ruminants, and they started to try different uh, coat or coating uh, ways to to ensure the, the the absorption in the intestine, and after that they started to see different effects right in the in the animal. If you ask me how to ensure the amount of uh, the required the, the required nutrient in the rumen, I will say that you have to provide a feedstuff that has the amount of uh, amino acid that you need or the nutrient that you need. But specifically in the dairy industry, where the animal is so pushed to produce a lot of uh, milk, or if you wish, in, in, in a beef garden to produce a lot of beef. Uh, the nutrients changed, right? Or the nutrient requirement changed. It's not the same the requirement that an animal has in 2023 that it had in 1970s, right? So I would say that also the 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 goal for 
coding or, or bypassing nutrients is not the same uh, in dairy, for example, than in beef cattle, right? Because we know that, for example, in, in dairy cattle, uh, there are limiting amino acids such as methionine that uh, there is a true limiting factor of methionine, but at the same time, methionine can, uh, can have another role in the animal uh, through methylation, right, or through epigenetics. So I would say that that depends on the animal and in the, in the stage of the life of the animal. It's not the same to provide a rumen protected methionine or choline or betaine in the periparturian period in a dairy cow than in a growing uh, beef cattle, for example. So there is, for example, in the case of uh, the methylation process, there is no need for supplementing uh, room protecting methionine to a growing calf. Actually, the, the, the calf doesn't need more methionine, but we can provide the, the extra methionine for fulfilling the, the need, if you wish, or the, of, to, uh, to increase the, the expression of some genes that will help us to have a better beef, if you wish, beef quality. So I would say that that depends on the animal and the stage in the life of the animal. So that's that's a, a really interesting point. The kind of the idea that um, the, these, when we think of 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 manufacturing feed, and we think about using the proper ingredients, um, if if we're focusing here on on cattle, and we're thinking about things like a rumen protected source of a vitamin or an amino acid, um, and these are always going to be more expensive than the non protected sources because they have to go through another process. One of the things that sounds like we do have to be a little careful of is is understanding that not all cattle of all, all that for all different production classes and all different ages it's not necessarily oh no matter what always go ahead and use the rumen protected version because there may be times where that's not at all an appropriate expense to to spend on on the feed um because for these animals over here it's incredibly important but for these animals over here they might be able to get away with a, a non-protected source or, or no supplementation of it at all. Is that, is that all relatively correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, as you said, there are industries within the, the animal production industry in which they are, they are more able to pay for the rumen protective uh, technology. As we said, the daily industry can afford that because... First, they see the results very quick, right? They provide the, the ingredient, the rumen-protected ingredient, and then after a couple of days, they see the response. So how, how can you do to sell a rumen-protected ingredient to a, 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 beef, a beef guy, right? You have to wait like a couple months to see a response, right? So I think that is, that is the, the key point there to, to see the way uh, in which we... As a, as a company, right? To see the way to, to see the results very quick and basically sell them, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Excellent, excellent. Let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I'm curious as to your um, kind of your perceptions on... You, you, you obviously went to school there in Argentina. You... 
um, came to the United States, spent some time in, in the South and then went to Nebraska and then are back there now. What are the major differences bet- between the different locales you've been in um, when it comes to ruminant feeding on kind of on a large scale, large scale dairy or, or, or beef feedlots? How is it different the way you would do it there versus the way that we would do it here in the United States? Well, that's a good question, and the the gold answer is depends, right? It depends on the size, right? Of the it's the size of the farm, but I would say that the United States is more prone to to buy this type of technologies because I, I like to think that if you want to feed an animal with women protected nutrients, specific, especially in dairy in dairy cattle, if we, in beef cattle, we are still researching it. Uh, you need to have the basic stuff uh, well done first, right? The, the cow has to have clean water. They have to be fed at the same time every day. You don't have to have uh, problems delivering the feed. You have to have very good feed quality. And after you have done all of that, you can start thinking about uh, providing rumen protected nutrients. Because as we know, rumen protected nutrients are expensive. and if you want to see, I mean, the, the, the supplementation with protecting nutrients will not uh, help you if you feed at different time, right? You have to do those first, do, do, do those, those things first in order to have a real effect on uh, the, the supplementation with this type of technologies. Uh, basically, I think that in the States, uh, you have or you can find more farms with more technology, with better equipment, um, in which the addition of this type of technologies will, do, will help us to have a better response in the animals. And I think in Argentina, we have also very good farms, but in general terms, we need to fulfill first the, the basic requirements in, in, in many areas. And after that, we can start thinking in using this type of technologies. I think, yeah, that that's a, I hadn't thought of it quite in that term, but that's a really interesting way to put it. I, and honestly is probably something that is, um, probably something that is, um, very interesting, uh, from a number of different species, right? Where if we don't meet the the baseline kind of management kinds of things that we can do. Then if someone's coming in and trying to sell us on feed additives or, or specialized feeding programs or anything like that, uh, if we're not meeting the baseline management or using the technologies that are already available to us, it's quite possible that we won't see that additive benefit of, of, something else we're putting into the feed or, or even another management practice um, as where some of these things, there, there might be some things we can feed to the animal that will make up for management issues, but there are others that require management to already uh, be good to even see the difference. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying here. If, if everything else is managed well, then maybe there's an opportunity as where if everything else could, could still be just managed better then maybe it's not worth spending all the money on on some of these feeding strategies until the rest of the management has been brought up to the necessary level. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking when you were 
talking about this, I was thinking in, in a study that we conducted in, in Alabama using women protected methionine, and there is a, a paper that came out came out this year using women protected uh, creatine, and the, the methionine and creatine is, is used for giving energy to the muscle in, in beef cattle uh, under transportation, and thinking in the idea of the feeding the the women are protected uh, nutrients in different countries is crazy because, for example, if, if, if you are transporting animals, you have to know that or you have to have at least a uh, good roads condition, you have to have good trucks, you have to have trained um, people who drive. And you can see an effect on a, on a research uh, scenario, right? If it, it was... Thinking about thinking about this study, uh, we did a study using a, a fake road, if you wish, uh, where they in, where they were testing the the asphalt for the, for doing research. Okay, we put the, the the cows there and we move them for twenty four hours, and you can get a nice result. But when you move it to a real life, where you have mountains, you have dirty roads, where you have crazy drivers, the result will not will not be the same. Right, so uh, I mean, continuing the line, what you said, the, there are many factors that you, you cannot control in a research. You can you can control a research uh, scenario, but you cannot control in the real world. So one of them is, is the big wise management. Yeah, sure. Once again, my guest today is Gaston Alfaro, a professor at the National University of Cordoba in Argentina. So. I'm interested in hearing because I, you know, I I know what a a you know experimental station looks like here in the U.S. And you man, you you mentioned that one of your uh, roles there is managing one one for your university. So what does that entail? What is it? Um, you know, what goes on at your experimental station, and and what does it entail to management? How how many different heads of cattle? What do you do with students? All of that sort of thing there. Yeah. Um we have here in Argentina a company that uh, sells some feeders uh, with scales. Uh, it's similar to Grow Safe um, feeders, uh, probably who, who work in the beef cattle or dairy cattle industry know what I'm talking about. And uh, we have a very nice station here in Cordoba. We have 12 feeders. And we are starting, we, we began to work with that uh, this year. So we are kind of setting everything up. Uh, actually, we have, we're now working with, uh, with an association of feeders who grow bulls for testing uh, RFI or residual feed intake. And we are also open to, actually, no, we actually had an experiment this year. Uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, testing different uh, silage uh, for a, for a seed company. So uh, I'm glad that I'm working in a facility with similar structure that one in the U.S. So I'm fortunate to be working like that. So I'm happy for that. Sure. Explain to to us what you mean when you say you're doing work on residual feed intake. What is what is the term residual feed intake mean and why is it important that it's something that you're researching? Yeah, uh, I think it's very important because it applies for 
every animal. And I think that here in this podcast, there are people who work in different industry within the animal production. The residual fee intake, what it basically looks for is to uh, find the animals who need less feed to produce the same amount of product. Uh, that product, you can name it as uh, milk, uh, meat, eggs. Actually, there are some studies doing shrimp. So it can be done in different, in different areas of animal production. Uh, the important thing of residual feed intake is that it's independent to body weight and average daily gain. So you can study that uh, in any stage of the life of the animal. So uh, based on that, we try to measure the residual feed intake uh, in young animal, in growing animal after uh, weaning. Uh, we, we start measuring that. Also, another very important thing is that that trait is, is uh, the animals can inherit that trait. So uh, if you think about that, the most logic path to measure this is to measure them in the, in the, in the parents, basically in the bulls, because it's the animal who has the possibility to spread the genes uh, more, than, more than the dams. And, and it's independent also to the diet that the animal is receiving. So when, do the, when we do the, the, the test, we bring animals from all over the country here in Argentina, and I, I know that uh, in, in the States do the same. And I know that there's a very good station in, in, in Florida, in Mariana. And uh, we, we bring the animals from different regions of the country. We, we do the test, and we know that uh, the trait that we measure will be the same when they came back to different scenarios. One can be in a tropical region, another can be in a subtropical region. And when, when we do the test, we rank the animals uh, based on the residual feed intake. We get uh, animals that require more feed to produce the same amount of body weight, and we have animals that uh, need less feed to produce the same amount of body weight. But the important thing is to know that that comparison of that ranking applies only to the animals under study. Okay, so uh, we bring, for example, 60 animals or 60 bulls to our station. We do the test. We know uh, from which breeder uh, the, or which bull is the best, and we identify the breeder. But we know that that best bull is not the best of our country. It's the best of only the 60 animals that were understand. So I, I want to mention and clarify that because things important. Sure. Sure. So so basically it, you know it's a it's a big statistical program and you are you're weighing you're you're feeding out different genetic lines for for lack of a better term. And basically saying, okay, how much feed did it take for this line to get to this weight? And how much feed did it take for this line over here to get to that same weight? And effectively, no matter, I mean, obviously in this scenario, you're feeding them all the same diet to keep everything controlled. But the assumption is that if that line over here took less feed to get to that weight, even if I put them on a different feeding program, 
they're still going to take less feed to get to that weight because of whatever is different in their physiology, ability to absorb nutrients, things like that. What, what are the things? So, so you're obviously looking for genetic lines. What are the actual things within the animal? If it's, if it is independent of feed uh, a type and, and their daily gain and all that, like you mentioned, what are the things that, the research would suggest are actually happening within the animal that makes one genetic line able to more efficiently consume feed than the other? Well, there are a couple papers coming out from that question. Okay, <laughs> so, good, good, excellent. <laughs> yeah, there are, as I said, uh, they study that uh, in, different, in different species. So what applies to one species may apply to another. And what there are, Several explanations, but the main important ones, in, at least in, in cattle, is that the ruminant microbes uh, are different. So the most efficient uh, animals produce uh, more volatile fatty acids than the ones that are not. Also, the length of the gastrointestinal tract is different. Uh, so the, the more efficient ones are shorter, uh, meaning that they absorb more nutrients per unit of, or, or per, yeah, per kilogram of gastrointestinal tract. So that means that the animals require less, less structure for processing the same amount of nutrients. And I think that those are the more, more, most important ones. That's, yeah, okay. That's, that's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, so I'm I'm by no stretch of the imagination a a nutritionist biologist or anything else. I'm I'm a glorified feed miller with extra degrees, but I've always found physiology interesting. And the reason I find physiology interesting is because it's like a mechanized system. So it's like the the feed mill is right. It's if this then that. If we can make this more efficient, we can make that more efficient. And so it's it's very similar to what we would typically discuss in the. Um, in the production facility, like you just said, Hey, I can make the same amount of feed using a smaller piece of equipment, a smaller facility. I'm going to be more efficient. So the same would be basically happening in the animal. It's, Hey, if, if this animal that isn't requiring nearly as much energy to keep a larger gastrointestinal tract, um, operating, but still absorbs the same amount of nutrients and turns it into the same amount of meat, then I'm going to have a more efficient situation. So it's, you know, if we can produce feed more efficiently and if we can put the right feed ingredients in front of the animal, and then if we can select the most efficient animals, that's kind of efficiency and sustainability from the very beginning to the very end, which is obviously what we're all after altogether. That's a, uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, one last uh, switch to to switching gears here before uh, before we wrap up our conversation. I'm I'm interested in. So I'm assuming there's a professor. You do uh, some some teaching, some various different teaching of of courses. Um, but you spent some time, obviously, going through graduate work and whatnot in the United States. So. From a student perspective, what is similar and, and different about teaching students where you're at now versus what maybe your experiences were, you know, working with students in, in the United States? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's interesting because I had the opportunity to teach in the States and I had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to teach here in, the, in Argentina. Uh, I think the 
people are different, both logically, uh, both the, the teachers and the students. And I think that here in Argentina, we have probably more, uh, I would say, more connection, more there. They're not, there's not like a barrier between the teacher and, and, and the student. I will not say that we are friends of the students because there is, of course, respect. But I think that working as a student in the, U in the U.S. Is, is an amazing experience because you have access to a lot of equipment that you don't have here. You have access to other people from all around the world that you don't have here. Um, I think that both things, um, both, both the scenario, working as a student here and, and in the States are different, but both have a very good uh, positive points. And I will say that, uh, that, I mean, you can find nice people and, and not nice people all around the world, right? <laughs> so, uh, sure. and I, I'm very happy for, for having the opportunity to uh, be in the U.S. And yeah, I will say that it's, it's, everybody who can do it, just go ahead and do the, do a postgraduate course in, in the States because it's very valuable and then take your own path. Sure. That's good. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. One of the things I was I was curious about is in in the United States, you know, if we go back 20, 30, 40 years and we look at the students that would come into the university and focus on something related to agriculture, they would all be coming only from an agricultural background. There was a lot more folks in agriculture at the time, you know, smaller farms, but more of them, um, things like that. And and today we see, you know, I'm sitting here in a in a poultry science department is where the feed milling program here at NC State is is housed in the prestige department of poultry science. And where it may have been two decades ago, everybody or three decades ago, everybody coming in probably had something to do with poultry before they came to poultry science here. And then they were just, you know, this is what I'm familiar with and I'd like to can build a career out of it. As we're today, we've got a number of students that when they might come to us, they might be coming from a much more urban environment um, and they have an interest in poultry because somehow they got involved in it um, or got exposed to it. But they, you know, they didn't grow chickens or come from a chicken um, growing operation or anything like that like it used to be. Uh, I'm curious is where where would your students fall in that? Is it still most of the folks that you you deal with? Um, in agriculture come from an agricultural background or is there already that shift of, no, there's quite a few that are coming from an urban environment, but would like to get into agriculture? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, Cordoba is the second largest city of the country. Uh, it has around 1.5 million people living here. And we receive people from all over the country. And I would say that Roughly 50% of the students are from Cordoba and 50% are uh, from other towns around the, around Cordoba province and around the, the country. 
And I would say one thing that probably is political, but well, I don't know. Here in Argentina, we have a free education. And I would say that I, 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 I am an example of that. My parents are not coming from a farm. I never was in a farm before. And I liked cows and I had the possibility to study for free. And I started to study agriculture. I worked, I worked for free for many years in, in, uh, in the farm in which I am responsible for one of the station now. And I think that that is a very good example that I can see from here in Argentina that uh, students from, from urban areas in which they don't have access to uh, a farm or they don't have access, economically access to a university, they can go to a public university. When I was back in the States, I was part of uh, the Committee of Diversity and I was very interested in, in helping students from international background to do the, the, their first steps in the international, in international uh, universities, such as Auburn. And I saw that in the States, there were a lot of opportunities to access to scholarships. And we started to see the metrics of, at least in, in the university in which I was, that, that students from the urban areas were more in the, in the, in the last years. And I think that is mainly due to the increase in the scholarships available for, for good students. We don't have that in Argentina. Everybody in Argentina who, who finished the, the, his middle school can go to, to the university. And I think another way to, to see or to give that opportunity in the state is through scholarships. Um, but again, the same pattern repeats. Uh, back in the days in Argentina, there were more, there were more people coming from, from towns or farms, not from urban areas. And now I studied and I graduated from the university in which I am teaching uh, 10 years ago. And I see that that number of uh, students from urban area increased. And not only that, but also the participation of you, uh, women in agriculture that a couple of years ago was mostly full of men. And I think that that change also uh, applies to, to the state. So I think that there were a lot of changes. Oh, that's for, yeah, no, that's for sure. We've, we've seen that same demographic shift here. That, you know, that's a really interesting perspective. I'd never, I never quite thought of that way before, but you're, you're absolutely right. Just the, the same thing that could potentially have, that could happen with, a, like you said, a, a state sponsored, a, a free education, um, and like you said, it's, is a political thing here because some people, some people in the United States think that's a great idea and other people don't, and we'll, we'll just leave that alone. Um, but, but scholarships give you that same opportunity. That's a really interesting point that if, if the education is otherwise paid for it, whether by getting scholarships, cause you're a really good student or because it, it is somehow subsidized. It gives probably does give the students a little more freedom to say, you know what, I'm I'm very interested, even though I don't have a background in agriculture and going and doing agriculture, or you know, I come from agriculture, but I have a real I have an interest in doing things with computer science. I'll go there. As where if they're paying for it, uh, or or a parent is paying for it, or something like that, they're probably a lot more likely to go with what they what they are familiar with. 
because they know there's a successful path there. I, 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 I come from this. I know there's a successful path here. Therefore, I'll, I'll continue on that successful path. And if you remove some of the burden um, or convince students in the U.S., convince students to work really hard to go get the scholarships, that might open up that ability to say, no, I want to go try something different because the, there's less of a risk in, in some ways. That's a really interesting perspective I'd never thought about before. So on that note, I, I think we'll end. That's a, I, I think that was a really interesting into our discussion. Um, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Again, my guest has been Gaston Alfaro, professor at the National University of Cordoba working in ruminant nutrition. Thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast. It's been great. No, thank you so much. And thank you for your patience. And I hope you'll see you again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate it. For Wise Genetics and the Feed Science Podcast from North Carolina State University, I'm Adam Fernolds. Thanks for listening.